Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome back to another exciting episode of That's Truth. It's good to be back in the studio after a one-week break because of a holiday, uh, long holiday here in Antigua. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening to the program this evening. Pastor, we have a number of questions that we are going to uh jump into here before we get back to our topic of demonology. And the first one comes from a uh, a listener, and it says, Where were the Hebrew people on earth when Jesus... Where on earth were the Hebrew people when Jesus was on earth? Well, I hope the person understands that the Hebrew people are the Israelites, and if you read the prophetic writings, when the Messiah uh, would come, there were certain conditions and realities that would be in place and would be present. For example, uh, the Bible makes it clear he was coming to his, his people. So wherever Christ was in Palestine, uh, what we call Israel, that's where the Hebrews were because he was coming to the Israelites as prophesied in the book of Isaiah chapter 53. We also know that he'd be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Again, uh, among its people, which would be the Israelites, uh, Micah uh, tells us that in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And then we also know that he would minister in Galilee, and they are told that the the people in Galilee would see a, 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 a new light would come. Uh, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that. Uh, he would perform miracles among his people. Uh, again, uh, that's where Christ was in Israel. Uh, he traveled between Jerusalem, Samaria, and Galilee. Um, he would be betrayed, we know, uh, for 30 pieces of silver. We know that uh, according to the book of Zacharias. And then um, he would ride into Jerusalem prior to his crucifixion, riding on a, 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 a donkey and, and a colt of an ass. You find that in the book of Zechariah. And then we can also uh, mention this, that he would be rejected by his own people. And, of course, that was in Palestine. So, And then the other thing was Daniel chapter 9 tells us exactly the year Christ would die in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 to 29. So if you ask the question, where was he? It's a very simple answer. He was in Israel, and that's where the Jews were, and that's where the, the Hebrews were. Um, remember that uh, under Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, they had returned from the Babylonian captivity, and they had rebuilt the Jewish um, Jew- Jewish um, state, basically. But even though they were under Roman control when our Lord was there, that's where his people were, and he ministered among his people. That's where the Hebrews were in Palestine when Christ was ministering, because the prophets uh, said when he came, he would minister to his own people. 
So I think that's the answer to that question. I don't know. Oh, the other thing is Galatians chapter 4, verse 14 said he would be born under the law. The only way he could be born under the law is when he was in Palestine living under the Jewish economy, which would mean the Hebrew economy. So that's where the Hebrews were when, when Christ came. They were actually in, in Israel, Palestine, uh, because all the prophetic writings indicate that he would come and, among his people, and he ministered in uh, Israel, and that's where uh, the Hebrews were. What made the Hebrew people special? Why did God choose them? Well, the Bible doesn't give us any particular reason other than the fact that God loved them. But God had to select some group, some person, some uh, some um, some um, ethnic group to bring the Messiah. He had to come through some particular line. And we know that in his sovereignty, he chose the line of Seth. Uh, you can trace that throughout the Bible, that is coming through the line of Seth, and it goes from Abraham, and it goes from Isaac and Jacob, and it goes to Joseph and Joseph's son, and then David, and then et cetera, et cetera. So there's a very clear line. That's why the genealogy that you find in the book of um um, Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 1 you find that they trace the genealogy in the Davidic line and back down to Abraham in one case and also to Adam in the next but he's coming through the line of Israel because remember also in um, John chapter 4 where the Lord says salvations of the Jews when the woman from Simeon was being dead because the Messiah would come to the Jewish people but he chose the Jews as, a, as the instruments whereby the Messiah would come but they were uh, not just Messiah was not coming for the Jews the Jews were supposed to be a nation that would draw the other nations to Christ and to God there was supposed to be a centripetal force to, to bring the nations to them just like the church today is not saved for itself it's supposed to be a centrifugal force where the church sends out uh, to people in the world but uh, in the back of God's plan for Israel has always been the redemption of the entire world So, but an instrument had to be used and he chose Israel as that, that, that uh, human instrument A text message from Antigua an acquaintance of mine uses the book of Enoch, Jasher, and Edstras to complement their Bible study. How reliable are these books, and are they even inspired? Well, there are three books that I mentioned there, and there are three uh, fall into two different categories. For example, the, the book that is mentioned in the book of Enoch belonged to that group called the um, Pseudepigrapha. Uh, not the same thing as the apocrypha. The pseudepigrapha uh, are what you call writings that uh, are false, but they use some kind of Old Testament name or prophet to give authenticity to what they wrote. And the book of Enoch is one of those books that were written between 200 uh, B.C. and 100 um, A.D. Um, they, they they use the word Enoch as the, the writer, but there's no real uh, authentic proof that uh, Enoch wrote the book. The book of Enoch was never, ever included in the Jewish canon of scriptures. Uh, they never considered it to be a, um, an authentic uh, canonical book that belonged to, to the scriptures. It was written in Hebrew and the Chaldean, later translated into into uh, into Greek. The object of the book, if you read the book of Enoch, uh, it really has to do with comforting and strengthening the contemporary Jews at the time that this person was living. And the focus basically is that it announces a lot of anathemas on the wicked and promises uh, rewards for the righteous. And um, But to give authenticity to the writing itself, uh, they attach the name Enoch to it to give credibility to it. 
if you read the book as well, you, it talks about the fallen angels, it talks about the floods, it talks about Jewish history from the flood right down to the Maccabean period, and it talks about prophecies that God had given to Noah and Enoch. Uh, there is uh, a reference in the book of Jude, uh, verse 14, that quotes from the book of Enoch. Now, the problem there is that they're not too sure if it's actually quoting from the actual book itself, or this was a tradition that was handed down, an oral tradition that the the, uh, the writer of Jude uses. But even if it is the um, a quotation directly from the book of Enoch, uh, it doesn't mean that everything that's in the book of Enoch is endorsed. For example, the Apostle Paul in Titus quotes a Greek poet by the name of Epi- Epimenides. Uh, you find that in, in Titus chapter 2. In the book of Acts chapter 17, he quotes also a Greek um, philosopher, one by the name of Aratus and Cleanthes. Uh, he quotes directly from them, but it doesn't mean that what he quotes... Um, is endorsing everything that they wrote, but what they quoted in their their writings was 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 true, and therefore Paul was able to quote it. So if the uh, they quote from the Book of Enoch, it doesn't mean that everything in the Book of Enoch is true. It's just that that particular part of the uh, the Book of Enoch endorsed some biblical truth, and it was included. So it doesn't mean that because the Apostle Paul or because anybody else would use a a, a, a pagan poet or a pagan philosopher and quoting. Uh, if the person wrote something that is true, there's nothing wrong in quoting it, but it doesn't mean the endorsement of everything that's there. So to answer the question about the book of Enoch, um, it is a pseudepigrapha, a book that carries a name of not the original writer, but a name that is attached to the biblical name to give some authority and weight to what is there. The other book, that uh, the book of Jasser, um, if you look in Joshua chapter 10, verse 13, uh, Nathan, if you can read there, and also Second Samuel chapter one, verse eighteen to twenty-seven, you'll find that reference is made to the book of Jasser. Joshua chapter ten, verse thirteen says, "And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies." Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of the heaven and hasted not to go down while a whole day. And if you look at Second Samuel verses one, uh, chapter one, verse eighteen to twenty-seven, you'll find a reference there also to the book of Jasher. Second uh, Samuel chapter one, uh, verse eighteen uh, to twenty-seven. If you read that, also he bade them teach the children of Judah and use of the bow, the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high place. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For their shields of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, from the bow of Jonathan turned not back, the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions, ye daughters of Israel, Weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. Verse 26, I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant 
hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? Yeah. You notice that all of that is said to be recorded in the book of Joshua at the beginning of the, ch- the chapter. Mm-hmm. So clearly there's a reference both in the book of Joshua and the book of Second Samuel that there was such a book that recorded I- Israel's history. <clears throat> the problem today is the book <clears throat> of Joshua that is being published. Uh, it's a rabbinical book that was written and uh, it was supposed to be discovered when Titus destroyed the the temple in 70 AD. Uh, they're saying that they found this particular book, and it has been translated in the 17th century. Um, and there are people who believe that that is a book that um, that is referred there in the Bible. But again, this is a book that uh, is is what you call a party pseudepigraphal as a false book. Uh, because it's rabbis that wrote it, but they use the name Jasher because, again, they want to give authority that this is biblical authority. Uh, let me mention a few things about it. It covers the creation story right through until the death of Joshua. So it goes from the creation up to Joshua. Um, it contains a lot of contradictions and variations that are contrary to Scripture. I'll show you that very shortly. It has about 91 chapters in it, and um, we don't have an original copy of it. We just have the translation of it, etc., etc. Um, let me point out a few things. Uh, one of the things is that it claims that there was snow at the pre-flood, before the flood there was snow. That's impossible because there was no rain before the, the, the flood came. The Bible made that quite clear. Um, there are other things that we have that they teach. For example, in Josh in Jasher 3.23, uh, an angel of the Lord uh, tells Enoch from heaven, uh, calls Enoch from heaven and uh, wishes to make him reign over the sons of God like he reigned over the sons of men when he was on earth. Now the Bible doesn't make any reference to Enoch being a ruler. Uh, over the sons of men who was on earth. Uh, in Jasher 3.38, um, um, as I mentioned, it talks about snow before the flood, which the Bible makes it clear in Genesis chapter 2, 5, 5 to 6, and Genesis 7, 4, that there was no rain, that a mist came up from the earth and watered the earth. So that is virtually an impossibility. In uh, Jasher 8, um, the record of the birth of Abraham, there's a star in the east and wise men who come to visit Abraham it's only the New Testament story about when Jesus was born there's nothing there in the in the Bible that indicates that in Joshua 43 verse 40 40 to 46 a wolf speaks to Jacob now we only have one incident in the Bible of any animal speaking that was when the, the ass spoke to, to, to uh, Balaam, Balaam right mm-hmm. um, and then in uh, Joshua 43 62 to 68 um God has um, an 11-month-old baby talk about his mother making an advance towards Joseph before Joseph meets Potiphar's wife. <laughs> so, so there are a lot of things that are there that are really not. And then there's some clear contradictions. For example, in Jasher 13.5, um, Abraham went to Canaan when he was 50. And then he went back to Haran and returned to Canaan when he was 75. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 17, Abraham was in Haran when he was 75 years old. So there's a clear contradiction there. Uh, and he went to Haran before he went to Canaan. They're saying he went to Canaan when he was 50 and went back, etc., etc. The Bible says he went to Haran first, and then from Haran he went down to, to Canaan. So there's a clear contradiction there. And then in Jasher 18, 9, an angel tells Abraham that Sarah is going to have a son. 
the Bible says it's God that told Abraham, not an angel, he's going to have a son. So there are a lot of contradictions that you find. In Jasher 22, verse 44 to 45, uh, uh, it is said that God got the idea of sacrificing Isaac from the fact that um, Isaac boasted against Ishmael and God wanted to humiliate uh, uh, Isaac. The Bible said the reason why God uh, asked Abraham to sacrifice was to test him. So you've got all these contradictory statements from this book of Jasher. In Jasher uh, 51-37, Simeon could not be bound. You remember when he went down to Egypt? He was the youngest son. Yes. And he couldn't be bound. But yet the Bible says in Genesis 42, 24, that Simeon was bound before the eyes of the other brothers. But this, Jasher said he wasn't bound. Uh, in Jasher 51, uh, 50, down to uh, 22 and 32, Joseph's brothers, when they meet Joseph down in Egypt, tells Joseph they're looking for his lost brother. Again, that's a total contradiction for what the Bible teaches on this whole matter. So why do you, Pastor, why do you trust the Bible uh-huh. and not this book of Jasser? Well, uh, there's several reasons why we trust the Scripture. That's a, a, a different topic in itself. Um, number one, take the book of Jasser. This was never part of the, the, the Jewish canon of Scripture. It's never been accepted by the church, never been accepted by the Jews. The other reasons why we believe in the Bible, I mean, the Bible fulfilled prophecy uh, that you can bet on, fulfilled prophecy, historical accuracy in terms of archaeology. There's never been a site mentioned in the Bible that any archaeologist had discovered that it wasn't there or contradicted the Bible. So it's historically correct in this fulfilled Bible prophecy. Those are two of the... the and then I mentioned before typology. I don't think anybody who does a study of typology and see that in the Old Testament there are so many... Uh, representations in type, typical form of the Messiah and what he would do, the work he would do. This is an uh, a, a co- this is not just a mere coincidence. It's, it's a marvelous act of divine symmetry of how God was able to knit these things together. And you can see that the writers wasn't even aware of how they would be symbolic uh, of what Christ would do on the cross, etc., etc. So I think those are some of the reasons um, that I would give, besides some others that we would talk about, in, uh, maybe at another thing. Uh, I wanted to just mention some other things. Um, in Jasher 42, verse 30 to 41, Rachel talks to Joseph out of the grave. Now, Rachel has been dead, but yet she's talking to Joseph out of the grave. That's called necromancy. And the Bible never, ever endorses necromancy. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 18, uh, 11, God condemns anybody speaking to the dead from the grave, basically. So to say that that is happening, and then in, in Joshua 52, uh, 53, 18 to 22, Benjamin uses the a map of stars uh, to find where Joseph was. Now, that's astrology. Again, God condemns that in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 10 then there's some other things uh, for example Moses was 18 they said old when he left Egypt that's not what the Bible says he was 40 yeah. when, he, when he left Egypt moreover the book said that he didn't go to Midian when he left Egypt he went to Cush Ethiopia and they said he became king of Ethiopia for 40 years. And then he returned to... Uh, then he re- this is where they get the idea of... Uh, that's another story in itself. But that's where this, this connection that the Africans are Jews. That's where they get this thing from, right? But um, 
after he returned from uh, ruling Kush for 40 years, he went to Midian. And when he got to Midian, uh, Laban imprisoned him for 10 years because he thought he had done something wrong in, in, in Kush, and Kush would come after him. And, uh, and then by Acts chapter 7, uh, 23 to 30, Stephen says that Moses was 40 years in Egypt, and he also said that he went 40 years in Midian. So when you look at the, the book of Jason compared with the biblical doctrine, there's not only a lot of contradictions, uh, but there are a lot of uh, anomalies that are there that are clearly contrary to Scripture. And then the other book that was mentioned, the book of um, Esdras, Mm-hmm. This is one of the apocryphal books that you find in the Apocrypha. Uh, these are books that are written between 400 B.C. and uh, 100 uh, A.D. They join what you call the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, there are 400 years of silence when God didn't speak until um, John the Baptist came on the scene. This is when these books were written. Um, most of these uh Books are designed to deal with the problems that the Jews were having during the intertestinal period and uh, the discordant situation they faced themselves. They were looking for some hope in the future. And during that period of time, a lot of Jewish writers wrote books to try to encourage the Jewish people. Um, the book of Jasser was never part of the, the, the canon of scriptures, uh, either the, the uh, Jewish canon or the Christian canon, the the Catholic Church uh, made the book of the apocryphal book in 1946 at the Council of Trent. They put these books into the Bible that they were not there before. But uh, Jasser, um, there are two of them. Um, that Jasser, so I'm talking not Jasser, talk, Ezra's, Ezra's, Ezra's. I'm talking. About. There are two of them: First Ezra and Second Ezra. Uh, First Ezra basically is a book that's written about 150 uh, BC. It contains material that uh, the book of Ezra adds material to the book of Ezra, and it starts uh, the book of Ezra from the observance of the Passover um, until during the reign of, of King Josiah. So it's more of adding books, adding some features that are in the book of Ezra. Um, and it also covers the final years of the kingdom of Judah. And there's a lot of parallel between what is written and the book of Second Chronicles, uh, chapters 35 and 36, which talk about the final phase of the, the uh, Judah kingdom. Uh, it concludes uh, with Ezra reading the Old Testament. And it, it's a kind of a copy of Nehemiah because it's Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah that reads the Old Testament. So there seems to be some confusion there. The second book uh, of Ezra is an apocalyptic book that contains seven visions and um, talks about the uh, the government of the world, the coming new age, and the restoration of certain scriptures. So it's kind of an apocalyptic book, like the book of Daniel, etc., etc. But none of these books are authentic. None of them were ever included in the canon of scripture. So to answer the question of the, the guy who asked, are they reliable? Uh, you know, the answer is that they're not canonical. They're not inspired. They do have some historical information that fills in some gaps during the intertestinal period. And uh, for that purpose, they have some benefit historically. But in terms of being a spiritual guy to, to, uh, to follow... Uh, is something that you should not want to engage in. The other thing I'd like to say, Nathan, that the reason why the the Apocrypha is included in the Douay version or the Catholic version is because a lot of the things that they practice, they get out of these books. For example, praying for the dead. 
purgatory. Purgatory. Uh, so they have found it that so when you find these extra biblical practices within the Catholic Church, is because they have taken these books, seven of them, and put them in the in the Bible, and they give them equal weight as the canonical books. So a lot of their teaching that is contrary to Scripture, they extracted from these books, and that's the danger of adding these books uh, to the Bible itself. So it's not recommended that a person. Um, use them in the sense that they, for any kind of a, a spiritual help but if you want to fill in some of the historical gaps uh, what happened during that 400 years of period uh, period uh, to the Jewish nation etc uh, there might be some benefit there but it's not, not really recommended for serious Bible students to read and to study You're listening to That's Truth a live call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse it airs every Tuesday evening if you just happen to stumble across us or maybe you've listened since the first episode a couple of years ago, welcome. We are honored to have you, and we are looking forward to your interaction tonight. Pastor, we've already had a lot of questions come in, even as you've been teaching this evening, and we will get to those in just a minute. But let me share the contact information. If you'd like to call and be put live on the air, you can call one 462 7420 If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to one 1- Two six eight seven eight two one four five four, and if you are joining us on Facebook Live at the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, you can comment your questions as others already have. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on eleven sixty AM ninety two point three FM and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Invite others, encourage others to tune into the Lighthouse, and specifically to this program, That's Truth, a live interactive program. Pastor, uh, follow-up that kind of ties into the last two questions that you've Uh been answering. Question from Anguilla. The Hebrew people came out of Egypt were black people. Can you please explain, Pastor? That's a myth. I don't know where the myth has come from. Uh, The... The African people are out of the Hamitic um, group. The Jews are out of a Semitic, two different groups altogether. The three sons of um, of um, Noah is where you get the three basic different races. You've got the Jephthahites, are the Europeans, basically that group. You've got the Sephites, which are the uh, the Jews and the Eastern group, and then you've got the the, the black group, which is the Hamitic group. So there's there's nothing to, to, to there's no there's no um, there's nothing there at all that that I don't know why uh, where it came from. The Jews went down into Egypt. Uh, we know that from the the account that is given, and we told that they multiplied down in Egypt. Jews, Jews have always remained very strict within their own their ethnic group because the Messiah was coming to the Jews. So they've always been a very very clannish type of people. Um, again, if you go back, they came back and they went into Palestine, and that's where they were during the time of. Um, 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 that's where the tribe, the, the Israel started when they left Egypt and then they went to, to, to Canaan, etc., etc. God led them to Canaan. That's where the, the whole Jewish thing. So it's a myth. I don't know where, where people have gotten that from, but it, 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 if they look at the, the chronology of the Bible and also look at the 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 uh, the origin of the the Kushites etc cetera, etc cetera. and uh, you'll see that the, the the three groups are there clearly from the sons of the sons of Noah that's where you get the three different races basically where you got the the black you got what you call the white and then you got what is called the the mongoloid or the like the um, 
Chinese people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Those are really three groups come from. But it's a myth that uh, the Jews are are, um, are African, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean that the Africans are the Jews. I don't know where it came from. I think it came from a lot of. Um, well, the Rastafarian has a lot to do with that because they they make this kind of claim, which is is nonsensical. Uh, the Africans were never carried into Babylon. They were never carried into Syria. You read the whole history of Israel, and you will see that when they returned, etc., etc. And those people that were in Palestine at the time when Jesus came, um, it's very very clear that they were the the Jews that came out of um, Egypt and went into Palestine and was eventually sent into captivity and then they returned, etc. And when our Lord ministered among them, again, it's all one connected. The prophets always promised that the Israel will return to Israel. And today, by the way, they have returned to Israel. The Lord promised that He'll bring them back a second time. And Israel was not a nation for 2,000 years because she was sent into captivity. But then in, in, in 1948, Israel became a nation. All the Israelis started returning back. To, and that's where the, you've got all the Israelis again. This is part of Bible prophecy. Those that um, don't believe in the nation of Israel uh, today will always end up falsely in terms of their eschatology because they don't have a place for Israel. Pastor, we have a caller from St. Kitts. Thank you for calling. And go ahead with your question, please. Yeah, good evening, Pastor Good evening, sir. Good evening, good evening, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Well, I'd like to ask you a question. Don't take it too personal, but no. I would just like to know what's your response. Would you take a gun or a knife and kill someone, um, regardless of the what? You know, I would just like to know a response. Would I kill somebody? Yes. Well, if, I, if you came into my house and threatened my family, and uh, I felt that my family's life was in danger, I, I would sure take yours. I wouldn't have any problem with that at all. That's so self, self-defense. Well, yeah. Lord, what about if that person, or you haven't done anything to that person, or he hasn't come in your house, uh-huh. for some other reason, you just feel to... No, I, 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 I said something. If he said something bad against you. No, there's no basis. Because he speaks against me, there's no basis for me to take his life. I would only take a man's life if I felt I was threatened by him or my family was threatened by him. I wouldn't have a problem with any compunction at all. If, uh, but so, then, uh-huh. so then, sorry, so then what would be, why not then? Why not? Yes. Uh, because the Bible makes it very clear that you know, that man is made in the image of God. He has worth, and the only reason, only justification for, uh, for example, capital punishment, is if a person murders another person. You've got a whole life is sacrosanct, and you must only the only Bible gives you only one basis really to take. Well, t- maybe two. You go to war and you fight in the war. That's legitimate. Uh, you find that throughout the book of the uh, the book of Judges, and then of course capital punishment if a person premeditatingly take the life of another person, uh, life for life. And the Bible says the reason why that is done is to show respect for the sanctity of human life. So the Bible makes it quite clear you're destroying the image of God, and once you do that, you have a, the government has a legitimate right to take the life, and that person is forfeited. So I believe in capital punishment. But other than that, there's no justification for taking the life of anybody. Whether they speak against you badly or whatever it is, it's only when you are threatened by life and you have to defend yourself if your life is threatened. I think that's a legitimate basis. There's no other basis I can think why you should take a person's life. Well, all right. Would that be a part of any commandment, God's commandment? Well, the Bible uh, in, the, in, the, in the Old Testament, uh, etc., 
it makes it very clear that there are certain capital offenses that were in order. So a person who killed another person, uh, that person's life should be forfeited. But there's no legitimate basis given in the Bible for a person speaking against you. Well, let me pick, take it back again. Because, for example, take a child, uh, an, an adult uh, child in the Old Testament who, because of drunkenness and his uh, profligate life, totally disrespected his parents. And uh, the Bible says that that person would be taken out and stoned. The Bible lays down what are the biblical principles for capital punishment. That was a capital offense. If a person was uh, practicing witchcraft or necromancy in the Old Testament economy, that person's life should be forfeited. So there were there are certain biblical reasons given in the Old Testament on the economy of law that were strict uh, offenses that would bring capital punishment. But so under the Old Testament economy, the government had certain rights to take certain people's lives. But we are not longer under the Old Testament economy, under grace. And the only, uh, the only thing that I find in the Bible is that Paul made it quite clear in Romans chapter 13 that the government is there to uh, maintain law and order, and uh, it does not bear the sword in vain. It has the right to take life. Even when Christ was at the cross and you had a thief, um, it was pointed out very, very clearly uh, on that account that they had deserved what they'd done, even though it was a capital. They were, they were hanging on the cross, and they deserved what they'd done. The, the, even the people on the cross did not dispute the right for the for their life to be taken. So I, I think there you've got to look at the Old Testament, see what were the offenses that were capital that God endorsed the taking of life, and under that system, uh, the government was correct in, in taking life if those things were offended. But we don't have any basis today, for example, if a person is practicing witchcraft to take his life uh, because we're not living under law. Uh, we don't have any reason to take a person's life if the um, um, if there's practicing uh, black magic, for example, or necromancy. There's no reason for us to take a person's life today because th we don't have that mandate in the New Testament. We're living, living on the different All economy. Right, for that reason, what law then would God write upon your heart? What law what, would... What commandments? What commandments? Uh -huh. Well, he said in the book of uh, Jeremiah, the, under the New Covenant, and we're part of the New Covenant, that he's written his law in our hearts. So that would be all the moral principles of the Ten Commandments would be... Uh, the, that's, that's the difference between living the Old Testament economy and the New Covenant. When a person is born again, the Holy Spirit dwells within the believer. And the, 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 we, 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 know, we as Christians now desire to live according to God's will, what God is revealing in His Word. Under the Old Testament economy, that was not the case. There was not an indwelling Holy Spirit like is dwelling permanently. And uh, so they were under the strict control of the Old Testament law, and uh, it was ruling by uh, um, a rod of iron, as you want to use the term. But now that we are saved, and this indwelling Holy Spirit, and our nature has been changed, we should desire to live obedient to God's will as expressed in Scripture. Uh, he has put that in our hearts. <laughs> That's why I have a problem with people who say they're Christians and can live ungodly lives. I, I have a serious problem with that. It's telling me that their nature was not changed, their heart was not changed. Because the Bible makes it quite clear that once you're born again and you're under the new covenant, that God creates that desire in you by putting that within your heart. So you want to, you want to live for the Lord once you're saved. Well, I thought that God put that commandment on your heart because of... The hardness of heart, disobedient, 
because the children of Israel were disobedient to God's law. Why he decided to put this upon our heart? Well, I, we agree with that. We agree with that. But the, the, the thing that he makes, the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, the new covenant was you do and you live. So everything was dependent on you doing. That was the basis. And this was work, salvation. And that never worked because man cannot in any way please God by his works. What God brought about a new covenant, that what he would do, he, do, he would change that old heart. So we have now uh, not a heart of stone, we have a heart of flesh, as the Bible says in the book of Jeremiah. In addition to that, we now have the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer. In addition to that, we have the complete Word of God. And the Holy Spirit and the new nature create in a believer the desire to live according to God's will. So you now want to follow uh, the principles in the New Testament that God, for example, all the Ten Commandments with the exception of the, the Sabbath is mentioned in the New Testament, every one of those except uh, the, the, the one of observing the Sabbath. Okay? So nine of them are repeated. So God has taken nine of them and said, listen, this is part of the New Covenant. So a believer should want to serve the Lord. A believer should want to not steal. A believer should not want to commit fornication. A believer should want to be a faithful witness, etc., etc., and not be a false witness. That is natural within the believer. Every believer should desire out of his heart. He should no longer, no longer de de desire to have a, a stick holding above his head. If you don't do this, I'm going to come down. He should have a natural desire in his heart because he has a changed heart, he has a new nature, and he has the Holy Spirit, and then he has the full Word of God. So it's a different situation altogether. A different economy is, is taking place with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the changing of our new nature. Well, I, 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 my concept is that God is a perfect God, and whatever God says from the beginning, He's perfect, and He means what He says in the beginning. And the reason why he said he will write this on our hearts, mm -hmm. because we wouldn't willfully go out there and take something and um, uh, kill someone, uh -huh. and then believe well, everything is all right. Yeah, because he said, if you disobey one commandment, uh -huh. you don't the whole ten. Right, I agree with that. But you remember the purpose of the law. What's the purpose of the law now? The purpose of the law was never a means of life. The purpose of the law was to bring man to his utter sense of failure and defeat so that he actually cries out in mercy for God to intervene and then it's designed to point to Christ. The, the, the law was to show man he could not keep the law. That's the whole purpose of the law, to show man that there's nothing he can do uh, in his sinful nature to please God. He needed a divine intervention and he needed Christ. So the law pointed man to Christ as a solution to the human problem. Pastor Murphy. Yes, sir. Uh, remember that Jesus Christ was one like us. He was he a was God. Like us. Yeah, he was a God man. He's not just a man. He was God and man at the same yeah, time. But he obeyed God just like us. I agree with that. We, we're not disputing that. We're not disputing that. But the point, the point that we must always remember that the law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It was never a means of life. It was never then, it's never now. Well, yeah, but he showed us that he could be done. No, he didn't show us to be done. He showed no. us that we couldn't do it. He could do it for us. That's what he showed us to do. No, 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 no. Yeah. Remember, Adam. Uh -huh. Remember, Adam. Yeah. Disobey God. And he said, if you... Uh -huh. 
disobey one of my commandments, yeah. you done the whole lot. Correct. So he don't he ain't had to do another one. I agree. He no 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 man, no man on planet Earth, including yourself and myself, can keep the law perfectly. Not one of us can do that. That, no, that's why Jesus had to come. That's my point. That's what I'm saying. He had to come to do that. Uh, but his purpose in coming, the whole purpose of the law was to bring us to the point where we, we, we just give it in total desperate. If this is what God requires of us, it is beyond us. We need outside help. We need a divine intervention. We need something supernatural. It was all designed to bring man to the end of himself so that he can see that the answer to man's problem is Christ. Put your faith and trust in Christ. When you do that, he gives you the Holy Spirit now in a new nature to enable you, to empower you to start living a life to please God. So you're always moving towards perfection, but you'll never meet perfection in this life. It's only when the body is fully redeemed and we became like Christ that then we wouldn't have a problem with the sin nature, but the sin nature is still there. It's not, it's not eradicated. It's still there. And that's the battle that goes on daily in a believer's life. You've got the old nature, you've got the new nature, you've got the Holy Spirit who's the umpire between these two. So you've got this conflict going on, but a believer is inclined towards godliness because the, the new nature moves towards godliness. So when you meet somebody who say they're Christian and they have no desire whatsoever for holiness, and to please God, something is wrong. Something is definitely wrong. We're not asking for perfection, but we're moving in the direction of perfection. And we should desire to please God. And if it is no desire to please God, that person has not had a real, genuine encounter with God. The new nature is not there, and the Holy Spirit is not there, because the Holy Spirit is holy. He's perfecting holiness in the believer's life. Look, we have sold people on an easy believism that you say a little prayer, and once you say a little prayer, we tell you, Presto, you're going to heaven. That's one of the biggest mistakes we've made. And a lot of those people have never had any conviction. They come into a church, they hear a message, and uh, maybe the pastor tells them some kind of a tear-jerking story to bring them down the aisle. They come down the aisle, they say a few words, and we tell them, now you're saved. No conviction whatsoever. And I think that's one of the things that I, in my judgment, has been the, the fault of the church. Let the people come under the conviction of the Spirit of God. Don't force right people into the kingdom. Let God's sovereign Spirit work in people's lives. But too often we want, we want to crunch numbers. We want to tell people and write home and say, well, you know, we had 10 people saved today. Uh, God doesn't work that way. The Spirit must work. If the Spirit doesn't work, nobody can be saved. And, and that is something I think the church needs to be aware of. Thank you very much for your call from St. Kitts. We we really appreciate you listening from St. Kitts. Keep yes, okay. Have a pleasant night. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Thank sir. You. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Right. Have a blessed night. Continue encouraging others to listen there, and glad that you're hearing a good signal there on our neighboring island. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.13. Thank you for listening to That's Truth. Pastor, we have lots and lots of questions coming in faster than we're able to get to them. So if you've sent in a question, no matter what format you've sent it, and you don't hear it asked right away, it's because others have come in ahead of you. We will get to your question in a timely manner here. Pastor, a question that came in uh, from Trinidad and Tobago. Good night. I have a question. Is it okay for a born-again believer, young woman, to still be friends with her ex-boyfriend, yet put love emojis under his pictures on social media? What are your thoughts, Pastor? I have several thoughts that I um, want to raise. First of all, I understand that there's a Christian lady. I hope the ex-boyfriend is a Christian as well. I would like to make a comment on that. 
if she's a believer, she has no right having a non-Christian boyfriend. Uh, the Bible is very, very clear on these matters that we must not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So I'm assuming that you've got a young lady who is a believer and you've got a boyfriend who is a Christian and uh, there is, there's now been some kind of a, a severance between the two of them in terms of a romantic relationship. Um, I think if people are Christians... I think even though you've been in a romantic relationship and you've broken a relationship, I don't see any reason why you should be enemies. I do feel there's a, a point where you can have some level of friendship, but within certain parameters and within certain uh, controls. Uh, the relationship is not the same as it used to be. I think people ought to know that the relationship is over if people knew about that before. I think if that is done, it's good for the young lady herself. There might be some other young men who were thinking and then they realized that she was connected with this guy. But so long as they keep on in their mind believing they're still connected, uh, they may be very reluctant to even uh, make a move in terms of trying to get to, to know her. So I think that she might be putting herself in a box and uh, and and, and actual fact, it might hurt hurt her in the process. Now, if the relationship is over, um, and there's a casual relationship there now, I think it is downright improper. Um, I saw some of the what do you call it emojis? Emojis. Emojis. Yeah. Uh, For the, those that are not familiar with that, that would be like a smiley face in a you know WhatsApp chat, and a love emoji would be instead of the eyes, there's two hearts, or right, maybe right, right. puckered lips with a kiss. Yeah, I think in a case like that, I think it's improper once the relationship's over to be sending. For example, I saw three of the emojis, and I saw that uh, they had one with the. Um, the eyes covered with, with, with hearts. Now, that's a saying that I, I, my eyes, I still have love for you. I saw one also with a heart coming from the mouth, so I'm sending my love to you. And then I saw one with the uh, three around the, uh, like, uh, the eyes saying, my, I've got eyes for you for love. So I, if I was a boy and I was dating a girl and we had broken up, and uh, and she's sending me these images on myself. I, I'm saying, she's saying to me, look, I still love you. Uh, she's saying to me, uh, can we get together? Uh, she's saying to me, uh, can we start a new beginning? Um, you know, so it's saying to me that she is either insecure that she needs a boyfriend and she can't find one and therefore she's still open up to me. Um, um it seems to me as well that she can't let go of the situation and she seemed to be flirting still to me if I see those kind of images so I don't think it's proper and appropriate once the relationship is over for those things to be uh, put on the internet and I, of course these things once they're put on the internet uh, other people can can, can can get access to them etc and if I were a person who was interested in her and I saw that she is broken up with this guy but yes she's sending all of these images with him as well uh, that would cause me to be very 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 hesitant to actually consider even uh, trying to build a relationship with her so I don't think it's a proper and appropriate I don't think they should be enemies I think there should be a, still be a contact between them but again it has to be within certain parameters and if she begins to date somebody else and that person is offended because she remains close to the one she's broken up with it's, it's wisdom to to, 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 uh, to distance herself from the person she's left and uh, build a relationship with somebody else. But I don't think it's proper to be sending these things. Just a follow-up note that came from the listener who asked the question. Thank you for asking the question. But they mentioned, Pastor, note that the ex-boyfriend is married. Oh. But separated from his wife. No, if that if the is married, that is certainly unscriptural, it's unbiblical, and uh, it's immoral, to be honest, to be doing that. Imagine her, his wife now, 
seeing a young lady that was his ex-girlfriend sending these things to her, it could break up his marriage. So clearly a Christian should never do that. I, I can't imagine what kind of discernment this person has uh, to think that that would be proper and appropriate for a believer. Uh, those are loaded things that are being done, and I think it's very, very detrimental to the man's marriage and could disrupt the relationship between himself and his wife. I don't know what young lady uh, with her right mind would ever consider that this would be something decent and proper to do. If she was my daughter, I would insist that that be cut out immediately, and I would do whatever intervention needs to be made to make sure that this stops and uh, doesn't continue. Thank you for the WhatsApp from a listener in Montserrat saying to keep up the good work and well said, Pastor, as you've been teaching this evening. Uh, Pastor, a follow-up WhatsApp comment from Antigua in relation to something earlier. Good evening, gentlemen. Pastor, do you realize that the four Gospels of the New Testament give different accounts of the life of Christ on earth, even the death of Judas that betrayed Jesus Christ? But that's, that's, that's not, there's no mystery about that. Uh, that. The church has dealt with that long time. Uh, four different portraits. Um, there's nothing wrong with four different portraits. As a matter of fact, if you read the four Gospels, there are things that are common to them that we call the synoptic gospel, the first three Gospels. John is an exception to that. Uh, but again, you've got to understand why the four Gospels were written. Uh, anyone that reads the four Gospels will know there are four different themes in the four Gospels. The book of Matthew is written to the Jews, and it presents Jesus Christ as the King of the Jews, the Messiah that was to come. The, the entire book is a Jewish book written to the Jews to, to show them that this Christ was the, the, the King and the Messiah. The book of Luke uh, is written to the, the, uh, the Greeks. And you find that the emphasis in the, in the book of uh, Luke is the manhood of Christ, because the one thing that Greeks glorified was the, the image of man. Look at all the statues. They always got this noble man because they gloried in, in the, the human. Even their gods were men. But again, they show him as a perfect man. Uh, to the Greeks because that's what they've been always looking for. Mark, you read the book of Mark, you'll find one word that keeps repeated straightway, 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 and the key word is servant. He's writing to the Romans. And the Romans, key thing about Romans was this being a civil servant. And uh, he's presenting Christ as the perfect example of what a servant is supposed And then you come to John, who writes to the world and presents Jesus Christ as God. So there's no, there's no, there's no contradiction uh, in these things. The account given of the death of Judas, for example, uh, it's explained in the book of Acts that Jesus fell down and it's very very clear that when Jesus went and hung himself and when he hung himself uh, from the book of Acts it's clear that the, the, the noose around his neck or the string whatever it is or the tree uh, it couldn't hold him and he fell down and then his bowels gushed out there's no problem with that church has never had a problem with that so it's just like four portraits if you see an accident four of us the different angles that we see, the particular angle. You might see the type of car because you're into cars. You might see the person that got died because that died maybe because you, you're a more of a personal person. Uh, you might look and, and see the, the damage that is done, because you're detailed, but there's nothing wrong with uh, having four portraits of the gospel. As a matter of fact, it might surprise the person that the, the cherubims in heaven uh, have got the face of a, a ox, the face of an eagle, the face of a man, and a face of um uh, forgot the other one, but again, the four gospels have the same thing the 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 eagle is the picture of christ as the as the 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 uh deity the ox is the one of service uh the uh, I'm trying to remember the other faces right off it's not coming immediately, but each one of those 
uh, it's believed that the four Gospels represent the face of the, f- the four living creatures in the book of Revelation, basically, emphasizing these different aspects of Christ. So he's not only the king, he's a servant, he's a perfect man, but he's also God. So it's the glory of the gospel that it gives this diversity that makes it so fascinating to show you the, multiple, uh, the, the multiple character of Christ and the fact that he meets every human need. You're looking for a king, you're looking for a messiah, he's the messiah. You're looking for someone who's a perfect man, you, look, you can find him. You're looking for somebody who is an example of what a servant should be, there he is. You're looking for God, you don't need to look in any other place. He's a total fulfillment of all these things that the Bible says. And by the way, in the Old Testament, these portraits of him as a servant, portrayed of him as the man that would come, the branch, portrayed of him that he would be the eternal God. He fulfills those requirements, and that's why the, the four Gospels are there to show that he fulfills all these prophetic things concerning when he would come. Pastor, a Facebook question from Antigua. Can a Christian be demonized? That's a very, very, very good question. And um, there has been so much debate about that. And if by demonized, the person means demon-possessed. Uh, um, that's where the problem comes in. I do believe that the devil, the, the demon, can have a foothold in a believer's life. I am still toying with the problem of a, a, a believer being demon-possessed. Um, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, and I have a problem uh, understanding. Uh, and there's no record, by the way, in the entire Bible of a believer being demon-possessed in the New Testament. We do have one New Testament example of, of uh, Saul, but there's still some doubt as to whether Saul was a true convert because the way Saul uh, died, etc., etc., into witchcraft, etc., etc. But uh, there is a lot of questions about that. I know uh, Merle Unger, who wrote What Demons Can Do to Believers and wrote the book on demonology. Uh, when he first wrote the book, first wrote the book on demonology, uh, he, he was reticent about saying that a believer could be demon-possessed. When he wrote the last book, he came to the conclusion that it was possible, and he based that, by the way, not on the scriptures. He based that on the experience of missionaries who had worked overseas and had come into contact with people who were converted at some stage and became demon-possessed. So he felt that the weight of the evidence from the, uh, the reports that he got from the mission field indicated that it was possible for a believer to get so far away from God as to become possessed by demons. I myself, uh, at this point in time, I'm a little bit um, hesitant in making a, a definitive statement on this matter. I do feel a believer can be demonized in the sense that the stronghold can be set up in a believer's life. And, uh, I, 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 and I, I do believe that a believer does need deliverance in some cases in that so more oppressed but not possessed yes I am more inclined in that direction Um, but as I said there are a lot of missionaries who have come back and made all kind of reports on these matters and have actually uh, claimed that they have um, delivered people who were demon possessed who were also Christians and that's where the problem comes in for the follow-up on a previous question there about the apparent contradictions in the Gospels Mm -hmm. we did an episode uh, Pastor did an episode, episode number 37, on apparent contradictions in the Bible. If you would like to listen to that episode, there's a number of ways you can do it. You can go to the Facebook Live video feed, even after it's archived, and we have posted a link to that uh, to that episode in the video feed comments. Or you can just go to Google, type in that's 
Truth podcast, and you will find it listed on a number of different podcast providers. And scroll down, choose your podcast provider, and scroll down to episode number 37 entitled Apparent Contradictions in the Bible, and that was originally recorded on October 2nd, 2018. Uh, Let me just put in check here something. You know, one of the great marvels of the Scripture uh, is only when you begin to examine it thoroughly and and, and see the differences that you find in the Bible and then begin to understand why they were... Take take those four Gospels again. When, if you're going to have a king and he's coming and he's going to be king of Israel, he must have a genealogy. And that's why his genealogy goes back to David. Okay? If you're going to show a man is a perfect man... In Luke, the genealogy goes back to Adam, showing that Christ is the perfect Adam that was to come. But if you have a servant, like the book of Mark, there's no genealogy. A servant doesn't need a, 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 need a, a genealogy. And then if you have a, a, a person who is God, he ain't got no genealogy either. So you don't have a genealogy in the book of, uh, of the Gospel of John, not the Gospel of Mark, but you do have one in Matthew. When I look at that, the marvel of that alone mm-hmm. should make people understand this is not a book that is, man could have imagined. This is God controlling what he gives us in his word. And it's that kind of a, uh, those kind of differences and the explanation that, that comes with these kind of things help us see that this is a book beyond human comprehension and behind, behind, uh, beyond human, human ability to just write a book like this. Time Across the Eastern Caribbean is 828. If you sent in a question you haven't heard it asked yet, don't turn off the radio. Stay tuned. We are getting to your question. Pastor, a WhatsApp question from Anguilla. Did Elijah really come the second time in the person of John the Baptist? And the verses in question come from Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 to 13, and I'll read those. And his disciples asked him, saying, When they say the scribes that Elias must first come, and Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Again, the question is, did Elijah really come the second time in the person of John the Baptist? Well, let me put it this way. The Bible does not support the teaching of reincarnation. So if the person suggesting that Elijah, the person of Elijah, uh, reincarnated in the form of uh of John the Baptist, if that's what the person's thinking, that is contrary to all biblical teaching. There's no such thing as reincarnation in the Bible, and therefore, if that's your thinking, the answer is no to that. But I also want you to look at Malachi 4, 5 for just a minute. Malachi chapter 4 and verse number 5 reads as follows. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Okay, so the Lord had promised in the last book of the Bible that Elijah would come. Last book of the Old Testament. Old Testament, of the Old Testament, that Elijah would come. Uh, And uh, if you look also at uh, Matthew 11, 14. That says, And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was come for me. Come for to come. Uh-huh. 
Same as the word there, Elijah, it's the word there, Elijah. Okay. okay. So our Lord is saying that this is the Elijah that has promised in Malachi has come. He's come in John the Baptist. In other words, John the Baptist has come in the spirit of Elijah. If you look at the way Elijah was dressed in the Old Testament, you'll find that it's very clear that when they describe John the Baptist, he, he dressed almost like Elijah. Interesting. So he is the Elijah that is coming in the spirit of Elijah, the same type of spirit of Elijah, but not Elijah in the sense that he's reincarnated to, to, into John because they're dealing with two different personalities. Uh, so this is not a, a, a teaching on reincarnation. It's just saying that uh, God promised Elijah. But notice he will come before what day? In Malachi, before the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, the great and terrible day. And after Christ came before the great and terrible day, the judgment is to come. But he's coming, first of all, as a savior, not as a judge. Elijah would come before that judgment day. So it's actually fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. And he's coming really as the. John the Baptist is coming in the spirit of Elijah. That's that's the significance of it. It's not that Elijah himself has reincarnated into into um, into into Elijah. Pastor, a individual from Antigua would like you to give your thoughts on the following. I, when an Adventist, I'm assuming a Seventh Day Adventist, spends time in their private home in private worship, and then later spends time on their porch in public worship, singing praises, playing their piano, where others, including their neighbors, can hear. Is this something that you think is tied specifically to the Adventist religion? I would say this. Um, I know I get, I get where you're coming from. I would say that's one of the things I admire uh, about the Adventists. Um, and, you know, I don't believe the doctrine. I think they're off. On, and uh, the, the investigative judgment is the whole doctrinal system that would collapse Adventism. It's not biblical, etc., etc. But that is one feature that I do admire about the Seventh-day Adventists. When I was living in St. Lucia, pastoring there, um, when you walk the road from about 6.30 in the evening, uh, you always knew it was a Seventh-day Adventist home because you can hear the family singing Songs. This is on a Friday. On a Friday evening, you walk the road because they go from six six o'clock in the Friday evening until six the next day. So on Friday, it seems as though they have family worship because they, they don't go out, they don't do anything. Basically, I think that was admirable. I used to I used to admire the fact that they would have that family time together. So I think it's a, a feature of Adventism that I think other churches could imitate, maybe on Sunday evening or something. But uh, I think it's one of the unique features about the Adventists, and I think that's why some of these people find it attractive. Uh, but it is a feature of the, the Adventists. Thank you for the individual who sent in that question. If you have a question and you would like to call and be put live on the air, you can call one 7420 I'll give that to you again as you get your phone unlocked. And get it ready to dial 1-268-462-7420 is the number to be put live on the air. The phone line is available and waiting for you. If you'd rather send your question via WhatsApp or text, send it to the following number. 1-268-782-4444. That's 
1454. WhatsApp or text 268 782 1454. And you can also send your comments and your questions via Facebook, as a number of listeners have already this evening. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and your comments will get passed along to Pastor Murphy. Pastor, here's a question from Facebook coming from Nevis. Good evening, Nathan and Pastor Murphy. Two questions. Piggybacking off your topic from last week, which last week was a holiday here in Antigua, so we rebroadcast a an episode talking about the role of women in the church. Oh, okay. What should you do if your pastor or minister was a male and then a transition was made and a female was brought in? Do you change churches or do you follow the pastor in their new church? I can only tell you what I would do. I would change churches. Um, look, the Bible is very, very clear that um, a woman is not to be a pastor. Very, very clear on that. I don't know where people have problems with it. Read the book of First Timothy. Paul gives the reason why this is so. Paul explains that when God created uh, a man and woman, he had a plan a hierarchical plan, and the plan was that the man would be the leader, the one would be authority. Secondly, Paul points out that the woman was the one who caused the fall. She was deceived, and Paul used that as a basis, again, why he would not allow a woman to have authority or have a teaching role within the church. Those things had never changed. Uh, it wasn't an accident that Adam was made first, Okay. Uh, is a historical fact that um, w- women, I mean, that Eve fell. As a result of that, God has restricted the role of a woman being the leader. And, and, and again, go back to the qualifications that God gave for a pastor. He must be the husband of one wife. No woman uh, falls into that category unless well, we got the transgender, today, maybe we've got a different story. But it takes that role out uh, from under. It's like in the home. No matter how you argue, the head of the home is the man. And the reason why that is so, again, has to do with the hierarchical order, and God has made man the head of the home. Now, it doesn't matter what she feels, how she thinks. If she's a believer, she falls on the authority of her husband. It's not a 50-50% half and half. He is the head, and she is under his authority. We can't surrender that. If we surrender that, and we surrender, I don't know where we'll go in terms of, of, of having uh, biblical teaching. So my answer to that question would be that would be this. If I found, I was living in a church where I understand the biblical order and the fact that the woman is not called to be a, a pastor, and then my church is calling a pastor, I will give them an option. Basically, I was, listen, I can't continue in this church under a, a woman's uh, uh, pastoring me. And if you go in this direction, I'm going to leave. Find, listen, we've got one book. It's called the Word of God. Uh, we may have, uh, because of the, the cultural situation now today, that uh, we may have issues against the culture, but the Bible is transcultural. We listen to God. We don't listen to man. The moment we surrender one area, we have to surrender other areas. And this is what's been happening to the church. I've pointed out before that the church compromised with evolution. They didn't understand the full impact of that. From the time you compromise with evolution, you compromise with everything. You can't now defend life. Uh, and uh, so I think that the mistake that was made many uh, um, decades ago, the church is now reaping the results of that compromise. We stick with the book. It's God's word. 
And this book is transcendent, the principle is transcendent, and we just obey Scripture. Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Yeah, good evening, Hi, how are you doing, sir? Good to hear you. Good, man. Okay, Pastor, I would like you to ask me, I, I, I have the order to read that. It's Psalm 27. Psalm 27? Yeah. Uh, uh, one day we had some of a nice prayer, and then in verse 6, where he exalting that he give God praise and he sing and things. And all of a sudden, verse 7, he just started to say about, oh, have mercy upon you, God, here when I cry. Uh-huh. I wonder if Satan reflects something on him when he had just about to get the breakthrough. And Satan being that one, something of his past and make him feel guilty. Uh-huh. Well, look, you know, I just can't re- read two verses without looking at the other verses, so I really would need to look at this chapter. The danger of coming, uh, you're reading two verses, and i trying to come to, I would have to f- uh, find out what was the theme of David, I had to read what comes before, what comes after, and mm-hmm. that would that would take me a little bit of time to go through this psalm to just look at it. Do you mind if I um, hold off and respond to that without immediate? But I would say this, there's nothing wrong that a person can be uplifting and praising God, uh, and in, in one sentence, and then suddenly there's a reversal. I don't think it's necessary that Satan is doing that. Sometimes your conscience. No, but, um, but, uh, uh, but uh, do you believe that you can be praying and just see when you're about to get the breakthrough, the anointing and the devil can just reflect something bad that, that you are done in your past? Of course. And, and listen, you make you feel guilty? What, what, what amazes us, and I hope amazes you, is that you would have the purest thoughts when you're praying, and then suddenly out of nowhere, the worst thing that you can ever think now begins to, to bombard your mind. Yeah. And that is part of the enemy as well, uh, uh, bringing up and dredging up your past. So I, don't, I, I know it happens. I know it happens. You would think in your most holiest moment, you can't think you have the filthiest thought, just probably, but you know it's not you because you resist that that has actually happened. That's not something you want. So clearly the enemy is involved in, in, in that process. Okay, okay, yeah. Because I believe that what happened to David. So anyone got a chance, you... Yeah, I got to look at it more carefully to see what he was, what the problem was there and what he was struggling with. Yeah, yeah, but I do agree with you that there are times... <laughs> I, it happens to me and it happens to every Christian. Uh, you'll be reading your Bible, you'll be praying, and out of nowhere, the worst thing you've ever done in your entire life just bangs you and you say but where did this come from and and you 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 repulse that has actually happened to you so you know it's not something that you yourself are conjuring up so the enemy uh definitely remember he's been on the scene for six thousand years and uh he knows a lot about us and therefore he would use every means that he has at our disposal yeah, yeah disposal. Because, because if you remember when 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 daniel had praying and the blessing had coming down remember the when, when, when you get you get interrupted with the false prophet, the demons on them, remember they interrupt the Daniel. So anything can happen with that the enemy, the enemy, the enemy knows everything you know more than us. Yeah, we're we're in great warfare. We got to be yeah. very conscious of that. And uh, the 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 more you go on in your Christian life, you realize the battle is not flesh and blood. It dawns on you that it's not just a flesh and blood battle. It becomes so obvious to you after a period of time. So we need to be watchful and put on the whole armor of God. Okay. How's your wife? You get a to read it. I will listen here. How is your wife? Oh, uh, no, she's fine. She's fine. <laughs> Keep the honey in the honeymoon, okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, God <laughs> bless. Thank you very much God for bless. your call. Thanks for listening, as always. And we will start out next week's program, Lord willing, with more in-depth 
discussion on those verses there in Psalm 27. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at org. And for this particular program, That's Truth, a live call-in program, we are also available or live on Facebook Live. You can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and we appreciate those of you who are joining us that way. Not only can you listen to the program, but you can see a little bit of a snapshot behind the scenes of what goes on during this program. Pastor, we were before that call, you were talking about the fact that a church, you're at a church, they have a male pastor, female pastor is called. Uh, the end of that question was, should I stay at the church or should I follow the male pastor to his new church? What are your thoughts there? I, I, I don't think you necessarily have to follow the, 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 uh, the male pastor. Um, again, if, if he's a, God, a, God, a godly man and um, he's had a very effective ministry with you, uh, I would encourage you to do that, to be honest with you. Uh, um, so if he's moving to another country, you can't do that. So you might have to find another good church. Unless within. you're a diehard fan of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to migrate too. <laughs> but if he's a, 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 his ministered effectively to you, you benefit from his ministry, he's now moving on to another church in the island, and he's going to pastor there. Uh, my honest, for me, I'm just telling you what I would do. I would not sit under the ministry of a woman pastor because she's not called to be a pastor. And I do believe that it would be the proper thing for you to do. If he's still in the island and he's been a, an effective pastor to you and to your family, uh, I, I think it's right and proper that you uh, follow his his, his, um, his his teaching and his preaching and go on and join uh, that ch- uh, the, the, the church that he's going off to. And another question from that same listener in Nevis. In the book of Job, while Job did not curse God directly, he did curse the day he was born. Is that the same thing if everything that God has made was perfect? Uh, I'm not too sure. Listen, when Job was uh, going through what he was handling, uh, remember that Job can't understand why God is targeting him. Uh, no, we understand because we it's like a, it's a drama. We know exactly what is happening. But th- just put yourself in Job's position. You're living a righteous life. Uh, if, later on, he talked about he feeding the poor and he taking care of that. There's nothing that Job can find in his life that could justify the kind of trials that he's going through. I mean, imagine that you lose your family. Imagine that. Uh, a storm comes and blow down your house. You think it's God that sent the storm. We learned that later the enemy sent the storm. Imagine that people come and invade your house, two different sections, etc., and then you lose all your real estate, all your, your wealth, etc., etc. And then after that, you have your body covered in boils from top to head. You, you, you can't even walk, uh, and so on and so forth. So you're in enormous pain, and the mystery is, why am I suffering? In those moments, Job is just speaking how he feels. And I would like to tell people this. You could tell God anything because you can't surprise him. So all that Job is doing basically is, is expressing to God his total frustration. Why did you allow me to be born? Right? Uh, I think that is legitimate. And I think that when people go through that kind of level of pain, there's nothing wrong in ventilating before God. And nothing said, I wish I wasn't born. I mean, we can understand people can go through those kind of emotions. God is not surprised when we express those kind of depths of emotion. And, um, of course, 
God chasing Job and in the end because, you know, he asked him some questions about uh, creation, that uh, some ABCs of creation, and Job realized I'm dealing with a God who is so incomprehensible and, and so omnipotent that, you know, why should I complain when he be God, God asked certain quiz questions? But all of us can identify with the situation Job was fine. And I think if we were in that situation, we probably would respond the same way Job did. It just shows you that as a human being, who loves God, but finds that the way God deals with us is so mysterious. And anyone that's going through pain for a prolonged period of time and is a believer is always questioning, why is God allowing this? And then when we compare ourselves with the wicked who seem to be celebrating and going to party and enjoying himself and he doesn't have a worry in this world, is that kind of a comparison that causes us to question uh, what is God really doing? And I think that's what happened to Job in that in that particular case. Time on this Tuesday evening is 8.46. Pastor, a comment on Facebook. Uh, I'll read it and then get your thoughts. One of the questions, on the question of demons and believers, the demons were always in the believer, but they, as the believer grows in God, God will deliver the believer from the demons. When those evil thoughts come when you're praying, it is an indication that you need deliverance from the demons affecting your mind. What are your thoughts? That sounds more like mythology than anything else. Demons are not in everybody, okay? A person has to do something or something within the family for to be demon-possessed. So not every believer, every person that's not a Christian is, is, is demonized and possessed by demons. That's a myth. Uh, as a matter of fact, going to the Old Testament, you'll find very little reference to the matter of demonology. There is some there, but it's very reference. Uh, it seems that when Christ came on the scene that Satan uh, pulled out all of his powers and all of his forces to try to destroy Christ going to the cross, and that's why you have this enormous demon activity. We know that before Christ return again, read the book of Revelation, you're going to have a revival of this demonic activity. But generally speaking, the Bible is very, very um, careful about this whole matter. Um, but generally speaking, a, a person uh, is not demonized naturally. Something has to happen. Um, either a person gets so immoral that he opens doors, and I do believe that when you get involved with the occult, for sure, uh, you open a door uh, to becoming entrapped and becoming um, getting a stronghold. I do believe also that within families, and generally speaking, when a person demon-possessed, you can generally check it back in the family. If you check the grandfather, the great-grandfather, you find out the history. You could almost, and I found that to be very, very, very true. Whenever there's a demonism involved in any aspect of it, you can always trace it in the family line. There's some great-grandfather, whatever it is. If you begin to find out, you'll find out that that's what happens. Something called transference. That demons want to get in a stronghold within the family. It doesn't let go. So it moves from the, and, and often the, the person who is involved in demonology, like a grandfather, he's very much aware that he has to transfer the influence from him to, his, to the child. And normally when the child is, is young, that is done in some kind of an activity. The child doesn't even know it sometimes, by the way. But it's not that people are demonized and every person who's not a Christian is demonized. That's not true. That's not the biblical teaching. The Bible is very, very, um, uh, careful and in, 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 uh, very, very reserved in this whole matter. So if you have an evil thought come to your mind oh, right that, in the middle of pastor's uh, sermon or whatever the case may be, you're The not Bible says out of the heart comes these evil thoughts. So the, the human nature that those evil thoughts come, not demons inside a person, okay? Um, uh, even in, even on uh, when our Lord was on earth, 
there were people that he that were demon possessed that he dealt with, but not every person he came in. As a matter of fact, some people who were sick were not even demonized. The Bible makes a distinction between a person who was mad naturally and a person who was mad as a result of, of demon powers. So not every case where you had a, a epileptic a problem was a natural problem opposed to demonized. So we, the problem with that is that the moment you begin to do that, you see demons everywhere. And uh, and I think this is the problem you have with the deliverance movement. Uh, I've heard of people talking about Christians uh, being delivered from demons, 150 demons. I wonder where the demons going if they come out of believers and they're going into the church. We've got to be very, very watchful and be very reserved in how we talk about this this particular matter and stop talking about demons, uh, demon this and demon the next. Uh, there is a uh, uh, there are demons. Uh, but the, the, the extent of it that people are talking about today, people being possessed, I, I'm very watchful about, very careful about that. A WhatsApp question from the Caribbean. Hi, good night. One question, Pastor Murphy. Do you think that the enemy uses sex to keep one down? Uh, and the rest of the question is, both partners are Christians but aren't baptized. One partner wants to be strong, but the other is making it difficult. What are your thoughts on this? Well, the most powerful force in my judgment, in my experience of dealing with people, the sex is the is more powerful than the desire for self-preservation. I've said that uh, in our church, and I'll say it again. Uh, that's easy to prove. If that weren't true, we wouldn't be so recklessly living in moral lives if we were really concerned about our health and about longevity. Everyone knows that if you get AIDS, uh, whether you believe it's a ticket to, to death or not, even if it's not a ticket to death, it's a life of misery, taking pills and pills and pills that have all these signs. So you actually, but people know that, but it doesn't make any difference. It's to live a reckless life. So it's a powerful force uh, in a person's life. But get this, when Jesus Christ comes into a person's life, uh, there is the new nature that comes into a person and there's the Holy Spirit that begins to clean up that person, the power of God in that person's life. So the person should have victory over his sex life or any other predominant sin. I've said this on the program, I'll keep re repeating, I think it is true if people reflect on it very carefully. Most of the times before you got saved and I got saved, there is a dominating sin in your life. That is the sin that has kept you from entering the kingdom of God. There many times you thought about salvation, but you weren't willing to surrender that. When the Holy Spirit deals in your life, in my judgment, that's the sin he points out that is the dominating sin. And he brings conviction in that area. And the question is, are you willing to surrender and repent of this sin? Now, there are many other sins you've committed, but it's that sin that has been the dominant sin in your life. I think conversion real conversion starts at that point where you're willing to repent and turn away from that sin and put your faith. I think that's a turning point in a personal life and it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to break that power in your life. And I think that's what happens when a person is truly saved. It doesn't mean that that sin will not rise up in the future because I will tell people this, the dominating sin that you came to Christ that you broke, the older you get, you find that that becomes now the same sin that becomes a very real temptation. But I do believe that uh, sex is a powerful force and the enemy will use that uh, to bring a person down. That's why when a person is married, Paul makes it quite clear in the book of Corinthians chapter 7, 
that a husband and wife must meet each other's needs and it's not the wife or the husband it's a mutual thing uh, she can't close shop or he can't close shop it's a matter they must agree to and Paul says the only reason you don't come together uh, is if there's a time of prayer and fasting and Paul said it cannot be unilateral it is something you must mutually agree to so the wife can't say well next week I go on a two week fast and uh, she's not taking your needs into consideration it is something you should discuss on in this matter. And, and then Paul says, come to get us quickly, lest you be tempted again, because he is aware of the power of sex in terms of destroying people's lives. So it's something that needs to be mutually worked out between the, the, the couple. Pastor, we have a caller from Liberta, Antigua. Thank you for calling. And go ahead quickly with your question, please. We just have a few minutes left in the program. Hello, meeting. Yes, sir. I want to make a point um, on the drama between um, Jubal and, Shre- uh, and uh, Ron. I, d- I didn't hear that. Could you repeat that again? I want to make a point in Jew. Yes, go ahead. It is foolish of Satan uh-huh. getting involved in a bet with God. God knows the beginning for the end. He knew exactly how Jubal would behave. Uh-huh. Satan didn't know that. Right. So God could hang all out and say, go ahead, do whatever you want, and you wouldn't question me. Right. Because God knew the beginning from the end. Satan yeah. doesn't know that. So it's foolish of him to be getting involved, as you can see, a bit with um, yeah. God. You know, when I, I agree with you, but you know, you, you can hate a person so much that you can't see. I've seen that happen with people. It is so clear that the hatred that is there that they make such big blunders that you wonder why they lack discernment. I think Satan is God's ape. Uh, as you said, God is sovereign. He knows everything. And the enemy is not even... He hates God so much, but of course he can't touch God. The only way he can get at God is to get through his, his people. And that's why he attacks us in that... Pro- but I agree with you that uh, it was folly on his part because God already knew that Job would not curse him. But the enemy could have so much hatred that they make such silly decisions that you look at the situation and you shake your head in dismay. How can people be so stupid or how can someone be so stupid when you could see exactly uh, that they're making one of the biggest mistakes of their lives? But when people get into the point, you could, there's something called moral blindness, that hatred blinds you to reality. And I think that's the case with the devil. His doom is certain. He knows that. Uh, but yet he keeps pursuing you wonder uh, why he does it but again I think it's the hatred that blinds him to reality I agree with you sir alright thanks thank you so very very much much for listening thank you for the call pastor we have two minutes left on the program for the listener who's listening and says I hear you say that a person needs to be a Christian what does it mean to be a Christian? What are some misconceptions out there? Well, I think the misconceptions are basically that if you get baptized, if you join a church, if you get confirmation, um, how much work you do, uh, I think all of these are some misconceptions. A person becomes a believer when he puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But he must come to the point of conviction where he wants to repent of his sins. If a person does not want to repent, and is not uh, uh, influenced to repent by the Spirit, I think it's a grave mistake 
uh, that that person is not ready. The Holy Spirit has to be working in a person's life to bring that person to repentance. But when that conviction comes and that person wants to turn away from the sin, uh, the Holy Spirit not only should ask them to repent and point them to the need to repent, but I think they show them that quite frankly that there's nothing you can do in yourself and they point to Jesus Christ as the only answer, that He's the way, He's the truth, He's the life. And what God requires of us is a simple act of faith in the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross who died in the atoning death that God can f- freely forgive us and pardon us completely. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question from Ann Gwill, and I'm going to read it more to whet people's appetites okay. for next week because we'll start out next week with it. But it says, Pastor, I'm not a Rastafarian. I'm a born-again Christian. But when I read some parts of the Old Testament, it is telling me that my blackness is in the Hebrew Bible or is in the Hebrew people. I just want to know the truth. Was Moses a black man born in Egypt and raised by Africans? His wife, Zipporah, was a Cushite woman from Ethiopia, black. If Moses was not black, did he han, did he have an interracial marriage to a black Cushite woman? And with that, we are just about out of time. Do you have any thoughts in the last 30 seconds that you'd like to share? In just a moment, you'll be listening... Do you have any thoughts that you'd like to no, share? No, I think that there's an interracial marriage that took place. As a matter of fact, because it was interracial, you find that his sister rebelled against Moses because she had married an Ethiopian Kushite. So that's the whole thing there. Be sure that you stay tuned. We will continue to pick up with your questions next week on That's Truth. We really appreciate your interaction. We appreciate you sending in questions. We appreciate you listening and encouraging others to listen. Be sure that you tune in next Tuesday evening at 7.30 and you can join us here. And when I say join us, I mean interact with us on the program. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.